to episode 59 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by one of our regulars, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, what's your nomination for the story of the week? I think it has to be the Islamic State Hacking Division claiming that it's hacked DOD computers and identified military personnel that it's now calling on its followers to uh, to kill, whether they're abroad or in the U.S. Yeah. Um, in some respects, that's not at all a surprise, right? Uh, uh, hacking individuals is not so hard, uh, especially if you if, if you want to find 150 uh, or 150 people out of uh, um, uh, you know uh, two million. Um, uh, but uh, um, it, it demonstrates there's uh, there's no conflict in the world that doesn't have some capability to do uh, 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 cyber attacks as well as physical attacks. Uh, um, it's not clear. I think it's not clear yet whether they actually hacked any computers or whether they uh, derived the names and personal information from from publicly available sources. Uh, okay. But either, either way, they're showing it. They're showing an interest in using. Uh, collection online, whether it's uh, surreptitious, unauthorized access, or just gathering from open sources. Yeah, well, it's uh, it, it it is true that we've always assumed you come home, you're safe, but uh, that is no longer quite as true as it once was. Uh, um, and we're joined also by Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, uh, a partner in Steptoe's litigation practice here in D.C. who focuses on class actions, product liability, mass torts, and complex commercial litigation. Uh, and Jennifer, I'm not even going to ask you what is the story of the week because I know what you wanted to talk about because I invited you here to talk about it, which is these uh, Internet of Things uh, class actions against the uh, – uh, uh, auto companies. Right. So this may be the first of many uh, lawsuits against the Internet of Things, but the case that I'm here to talk about is the Cahen case, which was filed in uh, federal court in California, claiming that every car that has been sold since the mid-1980s should be uh, a source of liability for the auto manufacturers because security, alleged security vulnerabilities in these cars make them less worth less than they would be without these vulnerabilities and that the risk that these cars may be hacked uh, makes them uh, less valuable and that these plaintiffs should be able to pursue the manufacturers on a class-wide basis so that all of this could be resolved in one fell swoop. Even though I, I um, still have my car that I bought in 2002, I guess I know I you do. Yes, <laughs> You're yes, right. I, uh, <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> yes. uh, well, I used to have a crypto license plate, um, and then I decided that that was wrecking my anonymity, uh, so <laughs> I got rid of it. Uh, um, uh, well, okay, we'll come back to that in a sec. Uh, we're also joined by Maury Schenk, who's a former managing partner in our London office and now advises Steptoe uh, and others on European technology and cybersecurity issues, as well as being a private equity and investor and a director of technology companies. Welcome, Maury. Uh, thanks, Stuart. You got a you got a, a candidate for a story of the week? Uh, yes, it's this story that the Chinese People Liberation Army has admitted their cyber war capabilities, which is really no surprise to anybody. But I thought the interesting piece of it is they've the Chinese government now has the confidence to come out and say this. Yeah, I th- this is this is a big deal. And um, uh, uh, Richard uh, Baitlich, who's with us. Uh, uh, is um, uh, an expert on uh, uh, military aspects of uh, uh, cybersecurity uh, from his past job, uh, uh, where he and is now a chief security strategist at FireEye, a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution, board member of the Open Information Security Foundation, advisor to ThreatStack and Squirrel and Critical Stack. Uh, um, uh, Richard, uh, how big a deal is this story? Well, thanks, Stuart, for inviting me to the podcast. It's a big deal in the sense that people who didn't know about this or who, who were looking for the Chinese to admit it is a big deal. Those of us who have kept an eye on this, I, I think back to uh, um, Tim Thomas out in uh, Fort Leavenworth, who's been tracking this stuff for like, almost two decades. Um, the Chinese t- tend to think that they have this firewall, this amazing technical capability to keep us in the West from knowing what they're doing. It's called the Chinese language, and if you can't read it, then apparently they think their secrets are safe. But uh, I think it is part of a pattern of demonstrating capability, and once they are 
comfortable with their ability to use that capability, they'll let the world know about it. And although this document hasn't been translated into English yet, um, the fact that it did come out in fairly prominent way is is a big sign. So we've seen that is to say it's 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 not a state secret that the document exists and the text of it in uh, uh, Chinese is not uh, well protected then, I guess. Right. It was al- also just a logistical challenge. Apparently, the first copies of this document came out uh, in Western hands in the past summer, according to Joe McReynolds, who, who, who broke this story and is writing about it for his book in October. Uh, and, and Western analysts have been reading it and translating it. And so there was enough of it there to say, wow, we have something here. Let's do a story. Yeah, this is uh, interesting. Well, you know, they have the same problem that we have. I mean, uh, uh, half the leaks in the, of classified information is the government talking to itself and conveying something that uh, they can't easily convey in ordinary channels uh, or having a debate that they can't easily have in an unclassified uh, way. And I suspect that the Chinese have the same problem. They're an enormous country. Uh, very spread out uh, uh, bureaucracy. In the end, they have to make this so widely available that it leaks uh, if they want everybody to get on board with the strategy. That, that's certainly true. This could purely have been for internal consumption. If they had really wanted to make a statement, they would have come out with the English translation right away, as they did with uh, um, Xi's autobiography. Uh, ah, so is, if, 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 if you know, one possible interpretation of this is <clears throat> they're bragging. They're they're saying, yeah, and we're coming for you. Uh, so live in fear. Uh, but if that were the case, they would have translated it. I believe so. Yeah, um, I think in this case we, we've seen uh, in different operations that we track at, at Mandy and FireEye that there are multiple teams competing for the same resource, all coming from different Chinese actors. So they clearly have a deconfliction problem, and this may be the first step towards asserting that the PLA is predominant in this area, and they'll try to have better control. Very similar to what we experienced probably 15 years ago. So they 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 did say this that that um, the Ministry of uh, Internal Security uh, uh, had a, a, a network penetration te- uh, capability, but that it was under the uh, authority of the PLA, which uh, is in, in, to trans. I'm tr- trying to translate that into U.S. Uh, uh, speak. If if the FBI and the Justice Department announced they had the ability to use tools to investigate crimes, uh, as long as they did it with the permission of the Pentagon, that would be more or less equivalent to what was said in this uh, document. I, I think that's similar, and it, there's been in s- some interesting research recently that that talks about. The Chinese ability to hack into different computers is an outgrowth of their suppression of dissonance, which was a Ministry of State Security right. concern. Uh, but then they realized they could use this tool not only against people inside the country but outside the country. And if they could do it outside the country, they could do it to foreign governments, foreign private companies, and so forth. So this may be the PLA saying, wow, this this ability that uh, derived from internal repression is a great tool to use on the outside, and now we need to have greater control of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. I think they devote, developed that capability against us pretty early in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, uh, because that's what the uh, North Koreans, what's when the North Koreans started hearing that they might be able to do this. Uh, um, and then they started using it against uh, their uh, their own internal dissonance. That's my guess about how it evolved. But I'm struck by uh, the way in which, um, you know, what this says about the power relationships, because I kind of assume that if you looked closely at any high-ranking officials' uh, network and computer files, you'd find evidence that could be used in a bribery and corruption charge against them because, you know, uh, uh, as Maury has taught me to say, Guangxi, Guangxi, uh, uh, there's just a lot of close relationships which can be portrayed as corrupt and which, by Western standards, mostly are corrupt. Uh, um, And so... For the PLA to say, I own this, uh, you use these tools with my permission, means that they, at a minimum, have an insight into all the investigations that the state security launches. That's right. And they could even, if they needed to, manufacture evidence and plant it if they wanted to move someone out of the way. The PLA is still pretty important in China. You know, I mean, Xi Jinping we think of as um, a president, but he's... You know, more important, he's chairman of the military council, and that is considered the real source of power in China. So um, I, I think it's no surprise to anybody that the PLA has 
this i mean the, the cyber law the cyber war role is natural for them but they have their finger in a whole lot of uh, uh, pies in china well, it's very interesting. I, I, I have no confidence whatsoever that there's real top-down control of the use of these tools, though. Uh, I mean, because, as uh, Richard said, uh, there are lots and lots of people who seem to be piling on the same um, uh, targets, uh, trying to compromise targets who have already been totally compromised. Uh, we see that all the time. Uh, I think you've seen it uh, at uh, at FireEye, um, and and so they're not coordinating uh, in their attacks at, le- at least. Right. I mean, there's patriotic hackers, state militias, uh, nation state actors, guys for hire. There's quite a, a panoply of threats out there. All right. Well, and uh, to, to complete the introductions, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to step to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, um, so let's uh, let's go to the news roundup to the extent we haven't already uh, taken the edge off it. Uh, uh, Michael, can you catch us up on we, we we've talked a few times about the Rule 41 uh, changes uh, that were that attracted uh, uh, very uh, uh, unhappy comments from Google and uh, others. Uh, um, what's, uh, what's the latest on that? Well, the latest is the advisory committee to uh, uh, the judicial uh, panel approved it for, I think, the second time. Uh, the amendment would allow a federal court to approve a search outside of his or her own district where the computer to be searched or the media on it uh, where the location of it has been concealed through technological means, such as a proxy server or something, or where the computers or media are located in five or more judicial districts. Uh, Now, people like the ACLU or groups like the ACLU and and other civil liberties groups are are just uncomfortable with the idea of the government uh, engaging in surreptitious searches of computers, regardless of where they're located, because they think it's just, they just don't like the idea of the government engaged in hacking, which essentially this allow a court to, to authorize. Google has raised the specter that this allows the government to uh, engage in searches outside the United States, uh, you know, extraterritorial searches, uh, which have not heretofore been authorized, according to Google. Um, my own view is that Google's comments are, are pretty overblown, and I think a lot of the comments are, are overblown. Uh, a lot of the concerns should be taken care of and, and addressed by courts as there are proven specific uh, approving or rejecting specific uh, uh, search plans by the government. A lot of the concerns really boil down to the Fourth Amendment. This amendment uh, to the to the rule is really just about uh, deciding what venue uh, search warrants can be granted in. So I, I think it's it's going to pass. There's still several steps. It's got to get approved by the Standing Committee on uh, Rules on Practice and Procedure. Then it's got to be approved by the U.S. Supreme Court, and then Congress has a chance to approve or, or disapprove it. So we're still probably a couple of years or at least a year away from final approval. So it, 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 would it be unfair to view this as a kind of preparation of the battle space uh, uh, in which uh, – um, Rather broad claims about what this would authorize are made in the hopes of forcing a debate or at least sensitizing the judiciary to the fact that the debate has to be had before an order can be issued. Uh, um, so at a minimum, if you're uh, uh, the ACLU or Google, uh, raising these claims now and having the judicial conference say, no, uh, that's not uh, the way this works, uh, actually provides them with the opportunity to make this argument clearly at a later time, and they can point to something that will be in the uh, the notes of the uh, judicial conference uh, uh, as a way of justifying bringing it up later. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really good way to look at it. Uh, and they've already managed to get uh, Department of Justice to respond at least twice now to the various claims uh, by saying essentially, no, this isn't meant to do this, that, or the other thing. So I think they've already gotten those sorts of disclaimers that that we will definitely see in the future when specific cases come up. All right. Uh, Well, I want to get to this uh, class action because this is, uh, uh, I think the technical term is a BFD, uh, uh, because it's an attack on... Uh, the Internet of Things, uh, or as I call it, the Internet of Things that hate us, uh, uh, because uh, uh, the Internet of Things, if once hacked, 
will be acting against our interest rather than uh, for them. Uh, um, and what what's peculiar about it is it's so early in a sense. I mean, there have been a few 60-minute shows saying, oh, look what could be done, but nothing, as far as we know, has actually been done uh, uh, that, uh, that would uh, result in the hacking of these systems. Uh, uh, so how is it that the plaintiffs have brought the case now and against every car in America? Right. So this is sort of taking the uh, the current trend in class action litigation, which is these diminished value class actions that claim a product is not worth as much as I thought it would be if it didn't have this supposed flaw or that I paid some sort of premium for performance that the product is not living up to. And what's different about this case is usually the plaintiff's bar minds uh, consumer blogs or complaints that have surfaced with regulators about product issues, you know, manifest product defects that happen in the world, and then they file a lawsuit claiming that people that haven't had the problem materialize but are at risk of having the problem materialize have suffered some kind of economic injury. They paid too much. And basically, it's a way of taking... Um, taking a class, uh, a, a lawsuit that might ordinarily be filed just on behalf of somebody who had a problem with the product into a class action on behalf of every purchaser of a product except for people who have had problems with it. And here, there's nobody who's had the problem yet. And so it's really the most extreme example that I'm aware of to date of, of this flavor of the month, the, the, the diminished value class action. So this is, this is, a, a, this is part of the class action uh, a bar debate where it could be it could be moldy uh, washing machines, right? Uh, it, it could be anything. You say, here's a problem. Uh, I I don't want to bring the lawsuit for the people who had the problem because there's not enough of them and the money isn't good enough. Instead, I want to bring a lawsuit on behalf of everybody who bought one for a smaller amount of money. But when I aggregate it, it's a boatload, and I can uh, I can get a settlement in which I take two thirds of the money and the other third goes to buy coupons for people uh, uh, to get free detergent. Right, absolutely. I mean, that, that's what this is all about. It's about aggregating a, a large number of small value claims in an effort to extort some sort of settlement. So, and, and we could see the class action bar, uh, hire a, uh, 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 penetration testing or security firm to go in and say, I found this security flaw in this product. Everybody has it. Um, it diminishes the value of your connected refrigerator, your connected toaster, your connected car, whatever. Uh, and uh, just on the strength of having that study out there, which they funded, they've now driven down the value of the uh, network uh, of the product, and they get to sue over the fact that the, va- the product is worth less. Right. It's pretty convenient. So wheat, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what I think what's interesting about this case is it's not limited to um, – more recent model cars that, for example, have wireless connections, it's really an argument um, that's based on a standard that they say is, say is present in all vehicles, which allows them to define this alleged defect at the highest level of generality possible so that they can try to scoop in as many products and as many model years possible, when in fact, really, you know, the attack surface of these cars is something that has dramatic, very dramatically over time, as sure. more and more features have been incorporated in the car, in the cars, as, as is sort of the, uh, the prevalence of hacking generally is also something that's varied very widely over time. So this is just not something that should be resolved in a class action lawsuit. Well, the reason I still have my car is I realized the only thing I was really excited about getting was new electronics, and so I just went out and bought an aftermarket uh, radio with Bluetooth and all of this stuff and installed it myself. Uh, I, uh, which there, I, there's no class that can represent you. <laughs> I'm screwed. I, I, I'm the only person. Well, maybe I don't have a conflict then. I can defend this. Uh, uh, but um, uh, it's true. I mean, the, the car, it's the same damn car the, the, as in 2002. That's the electronics that are cool. Uh, and absolutely, there have been a lot of um, uh, really cool changes. Uh, uh, in fact, now I'm I'm thinking, can I hang on to this until I get a car that will drive itself? <laughs> <laughs> right, but this, the lawsuit is based in part on on just the way the car parts communicate with each other. 
And so taken to its most absurd extreme, which is, you know, where these things in the hands of plaintiff lawyers sometimes go, um, you know, this could uh, kind of claim could be brought against any complex product that has an internal network. Oh, totally. Or an Internet connection. Yeah, I mean, this is this is actually Richard was saying this uh, when we started. uh, This is almost exactly what um, power companies face. Mm-hmm. They build a system that is as secure as it can possibly be uh, when they commission the plan in 1976, uh, and it's still a state of the art for 1976, and people are afraid to, uh, to change it, um, a, and it just gets more and more vulnerable every year. Uh, it's uh, um, and, and so exactly how you're supposed to deal with that as um, uh, as a car manufacturer or any durable consumer goods uh, is really, um, it's really tricky because, um, uh, and again, you were saying, uh, once you build in the capability to update it, you can get malicious updates. Right, right. And then there, I think there are policy questions about, you know, what are obligations to provide warnings and such where you've got essentially a problem that, is only going to materialize if there's a criminal act by a third party. You know, the product is not, even on the allegations of this complaint, the product is not defective in its own. You know, there were there used to be hilarious jokes about um, what our cars would be like if they were designed by Microsoft. They're not as funny as they used to be. <laughs> uh, okay, um, I, I, here's my last observation. This, too, might be preparation of the battle space. I'm not sure they expect to win this lawsuit. I expect that the, the people who brought this lawsuit want to establish their intellectual dominance of the field so that the next time that if there is a, an accident and they want to be part of the lawsuit, they can say to the judge, of course we can be a great uh, class representative. We're the only ones who have actually brought cases like this. Uh, so there's, there's wheels within wheels here, here as well. Correct. All right. Uh, I love it. Just, you know, come to the Steptoe Cyber Law uh, podcast for the inside story on all things cyber. Um, speaking of which, Michael, did you look at the uh, UK's effort to uh, um, regulate Bitcoin? Yeah, it's really just an announcement that they're going to regulate uh, Bitcoin. What they're, what they're trying to do, I think, is, is turn this into a uh, lawful, highly regulated form of digital currency uh, in a way that blocks out illicit uses of it and, and fosters uh, lawful uses. And, and I think this is also part of the UK's general effort to promote and, and protect its financial industry and, and keep it at the cutting edge. So it's going to be interesting to see what measures they actually institute uh, in the coming years. Oh, that's, you're right. They, they, they can't afford to be too behindhand on this uh, because, um, you know, uh, so many jobs in London depend on uh, the fact that uh, it's the uh, it's an enormous financial uh, and financial regulatory market. I mean, the main thing that they've said there is they're going to apply anti-money laundering uh, rules to Bitcoin, but how that actually works in practice is, is going to be the key. Well, Maury, you're on you're on the spot out there, uh, uh, and I uh, I was going to ask you about uh, China's uh, uh, return to uh, regulating the technology that banks can use. But uh, uh, what's your sense about where Bitcoin regulation is going in in the UK? Well, you know, as Michael said, it's just AML law, anti money laundering law, right now. But the UK, the Proceeds of Crime Act, our anti money laundering law is quite strict, and I think this is just part of a, a rising tide of regulation for Bitcoin. You know, two years ago, people thought it was an asset class. I think we've decided it's not, and now it's a means of exchange because it's less regulated than all the other payment systems we have. But that advantage is going to go away pretty quickly. So I think this is just a first step and will is likely to extend further over time, both in the U.K. and elsewhere. Well, okay, so uh, I, I don't want to go too far because uh, we're going we're running low on time without asking about uh, what's happening in China. Uh, they they bailed on the, uh, uh, or at least we were told that they had uh, stalled the uh, uh, anti-terrorism law that would have required backdoor access uh, on the part of a lot of technology, but they seem to be going forward telling banks not to use American technology. Is that right? Yeah, and I think this is a pretty big deal. Um, you know, Richard referred earlier to the Chinese language as a barrier. This term, um, 
that they use, An Chuan Kukong Xing, we, it translates as secure and controllable technology. The focus has been on a couple of requirements like turning over source code and, um, and giving an encryption keys. But this is actually a very, there's a huge catalog of regulation around what this term means with 50 separate categories of software, 12 of uh, hardware, 12 of software, and six of services. And it's going to be an incredibly detailed process for vendors to figure out what they have to do to comply with this, these regulations in detail, in Chinese, with the barrier of language between there. It's like um, what we had to deal with in the 1990s with Kalea standards. Um, times 10 or something like that. And it is going forward, but um, the deadlines for banks to come up with a compliance plan are just hitting now. It's going to be phased in over a number of years, and how quickly that happens is, is unclear. But it's a, a mess for Western vendors and could be a significant barrier to, to being in the market. Yeah, and we've seen this before. The Chinese will adopt these things uh, that take a stand on principle that is just shocking to Western companies. Uh, and then they'll say, well, but we're not going to implement it for a while. And people will um, go back uh, you know, uh, from their battle stations. But um, every time they announce um, a development in this regard, they sort of move the goalpost a little closer. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they, they might, it might not be as worse as our, our main fears, but it's becoming um, pretty difficult to be a Western company doing business in China. And now that they want to, um, you know, now that they're trying to build a consumption-led economy more, they care less and less about having open borders, I think. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And, and, and you know, I, it, it is interesting. Silicon Valley has sort of doubled down on we're going to make technology that no government can get inside. And, and the Chinese have said uh, our companies are going to make technology that government can, can get inside. Um, you know, I think if you took that those two technologies out, into, certainly if you ask the governments, 193 governments, which of those technologies they want us to see succeed, you'd have four that said, uh, we want the Americans to succeed, and the rest would say, no, you know, we'd be, we'd be happier if we could get inside these technologies. So um, it's, it's a kind of a long-term worry for, uh, for us to have bet so heavily on uh, 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 perfect security that no government can get inside. Yeah, and China has a history of forcing out the U.S. leaders in, in you know, big – Google leads most over most of the world in search except Russia and China. And, um, you know, Facebook is not a player in China. And I think the same – in some of these hardware and other software categories, U.S. companies have done all right, but that may get harder. Yeah, and and in my, my sense is they're brought in sort of as a uh, – uh, a pace horse uh, to to force the Chinese to to uh, compete successfully, uh, but as soon as it looks like the Chinese industry can can you know get within ninety five percent of what the um, industry leader from the West is doing, then uh, people say that that's good enough. Let's squeeze those guys out. I don't disagree. All right. Last last uh, topic. Uh, uh, we've talked about uh, settlements for breaches in the past. I think I, I did an analysis that said, gee, the victims are getting on average somewhere between 50 cents and two bucks uh, uh, for the breach uh, in these class actions. Not that much. Um, uh, Michael, there was a $10 million target settlement. Does that make me look like a liar? No, I don't think it does. I mean, it, it, it approves uh, awards of up to $10,000 in damages for affected individuals. But in order to actually claim uh, that money, the victims have to prove that they had unauthorized charges made to their uh, credit cards. And I presume they also have to show that those charges weren't reimbursed by the credit card companies. Uh, or they've got to show that they invested time addressing the fraudulent charges, incurred costs of some sort in correcting their credit reports, uh, or hiring identity, identity protection companies or lawyers. So they've got to show some concrete harm, not just, you know, fear and, of and identity theft. They don't get $10,000 just because they did that. If it cost them 50 bucks to put a credit check on, I assume they get 50 bucks. Is that right? Right. So the, the interesting thing, and I don't know the answer to this, is whether the lawyers uh, get their 30 or 40 or whatever percentage they get on the full $10 million or just the amount of damages actually claimed by uh, victims eventually, actually uh, 
awarded to victims eventually. I, and, and I don't know. This may be one of those uh, settlements where they, they say, and if the money isn't used up, we'll, we'll give it to some worthy uh, cause that's, uh, you know, uh, that the judge is an alumnus of. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that way they get to say, no, we got $10 million, so we want six of it or five of it, whatever it is. Uh, all right. Um, well, let's let's turn to uh, uh, Richard. Uh, Richard, did I pronounce your name right? Yep. Baitlick. Baitlick. There you go. Yep. Okay. Uh, and Richard, you were, if I remember right, uh, at DOD before you came to uh, uh, Mandiant, and then Mandiant came to FireEye. Well, is that right? Yeah. A long time ago, I was in the Air Force. Yeah. At the Air Intelligence Agency down in San Antonio. So um, I, I asked that because there is one other story I thought we ought to cover, which is the uh, um, testimony that uh, Mike Rogers, the uh, director of National Security uh, uh, of the National Security Agency, made, uh, in which he was asked, I think, by McCain about deterrence. Uh, McCain said, we're, "We're not doing a lot of deterrent," uh, and Rogers said, "That's right. We need to show people." more of our offensive capabilities than uh, uh, in order to make sure they understand that there's a consequence to hacking our, our infrastructure. Um, I guess I, I, you know, people say things like that usually based on experience, and, and I, I think that's code for we already have shown the North Koreans a little of what we can do, uh, even if we aren't going to admit it. Uh, uh, but what do you think of his... Statement one that uh, that we aren't doing a lot of good uh, of deterring, and the notion that uh, our offensive capabilities can deter. I think there is some deterrence happening, and it's the reason why we haven't seen any sort of catastrophic physical effect from cyber. So I think that there is deterrence going. Jay Healy makes this point quite often. I think what's lost, though, in some of the commenta- or commentators who talk about this is that. Um, they, they take the view of President Obama, who believes that cyber is like a basketball game, where the two forces are competing against each other. And I take the view instead, and I did a blog post about this a while back, that says it's more like an American football game. And I said in my post, you have four teams. They really have six teams. So you have two offenses, two defenses, and two special teams. And the way to think about it is our offense goes against their victims – their offense goes against our victims, and then you have two special teams who may be like patriotic hackers or who knows mm-hmm. what those guys are. So I think what uh, Admiral Rogers was talking about was rather than applying our offense to their victim, you know, the military or whoever target we're trying to get information from, maybe we go counterforce and we have our hackers go after their hackers. And so they start to feel some pain and they get some interruption in their operations. And to tell you the truth, guys who are on the offense, they don't play defense too well. So it's right. not difficult to break into their systems. So I think if we had a situation where the, the bad guy's offense was feeling a lot of pressure from our offense, it would relieve some of the pressure on our private companies. That's what I hope he's, he's uh, hinting at. Well, <clears throat> that would certainly be um, more effective. It, but I, I can't believe that we have not thought that uh, the cyber forces of other countries, their cyber espionage forces, are – appropriate targets for our uh, intelligence services. That that has to be uh, high on our list. Well, there. so I'm not a guy who reads the Snowden leaks firsthand, but I did see some uh, reporting that said that uh, NSA's uh, TAO unit, um, of which I have no affiliation, uh, was pursuing some of the Chinese intruders in their own networks. Right. So I can't say if that's true or not, but that's just, just what I read. We've clearly gotten better at attribution. I mean, it took us years to, and in fact, Mandian had to kind of goose us into admitting that uh, we knew something about Chinese hacking and we could attribute it to the PLA. Um, and now that's that's received wisdom, apparently even in Beijing. Um, eh, so I, we we must have gotten better at attribution in part by trying to hack their systems. Well, this is another area where there's this uh, extreme dichotomy of views. Some people think attribution is not possible, and you even hear some senior leaders who say something to the same effect. But in my opinion, you can't hold in your mind the idea that everything that Snowden said was true and then believe that the U.S. government can't do attribution. Right. Um, the, really where it comes down to is something my, my Ph.D. professor, uh, Thomas Ridd, mentioned, is that uh, attribution is a function of what's at stake. If it's a really important case, we're going to swing all the national technical means, all of the elements of the U.S. government that can help to that problem, as was the case with with Sony. Uh, Other intrusions don't necessarily rise to that level. So we're not going to get attribution for things that the government 
it doesn't feel like it needs to need to work on. So you know, Mandiant responds to a lot of uh, intrusions, and you go deep into the network and you watch the attackers as they're carrying out their attacks. You find, you know, the bits of code that they've left behind. Uh, you can see their tactics playing out. Uh, um, I've always thought that the most compelling argument about attribution is everybody's got a style. Everybody does stuff in a particular way because it works for them. And after a while, you, you start to say, well, this guy is doing exactly what he was doing the last time I was watching him. It's got to be the same guy. Uh, and, and, and when you look at what they're going after and you look at uh, how they set up their uh, networks, when you look at the hours they work, the, the, the typos they make, uh, attribution starts to fall out of that without even doing the national technical means. So everyone has a style. And if you don't have a style, that's a style. In other words, yeah. no style is style, to, to sort of quote Bruce Lee. So if you see someone who is always changing, that that puts you in a certain category of, of operator as yes. well. Um, but I think what one of the things I'm proud about with the attribution we do, it's not just technical. We also take in the non-technical areas. And when you combine those two together is where you get, I think, solid attribution. There also has to be a time element. One of the reasons why we were so confident of the attribution of APT1 in 2013 was that we've been tracking these guys for seven years. Um, that's different than an intrusion that just pops up and you never see them again. Yeah. Um yeah, you, you're talking about Bruce Lee. It makes me, me think you could you could do a kind of uh, the drunken hacker, right? To you know, say, oh, I just I'm just hacking away here, uh, completely sloshed, uh, and I just happen to be you know uh, connecting with every uh, uh, mistake I make. Um, so I, I, I'm I've been puzzled by the people who say attribution is not possible. Uh, why, why do you, why do they say that? What's their best case for saying attribution is not possible? Is it just you know, well, you know, Iraq, 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 or is there something else? I think it comes down to treating something that is theoretically possible as being a way to undermine an entire ah, argument. Of course, you can always say, well, that could have been faked. That could have been faked. That could have been faked. Uh, you could be somebody could be doing all these things to deliberately throw you off. And this this is true. Mm-hmm. And this is that strikes me as a very engineer focused approach right it's i can't i can't completely eliminate the possibility because any of this could be faked and therefore you haven't proven it that's right i've considered doing a blog post where i say you don't know that i wrote this post you don't know that you're really reading it at blogspot right now you don't really know i mean you could just back it's turtles all the way down yes and so at some point you have to have some trust in what you're working on Uh, and, and, and i think that's what security is all about it's about trust Okay, so yes, if if you say uh, attribution has to be a hundred percent guaranteed, we will not get that. But it's a human endeavor, which so. is interesting because we don't even have a hundred percent attribution in our court system. Right, right. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. Which is, are you reasonably certain for your ordinary business affairs, essentially, uh, that this is true? Uh, which is, uh, you know, we make we we all know we make mistakes in our ordinary business affairs, um, and. You add to that, I guess, the, uh, a sense that we're afraid there'll be warmongering with this. Uh, we don't trust government. You, if, you, if you fold that in, then it's easy to stand and say, I will never be persuaded by anything less than 100% security cause, uh, uh, proof because I don't believe the government of the United States on anything related to fighting wars. Yeah, right. You could be. even say that, look, I had a picture of someone conducting this activity, hands on keyboard, and you'd say, well, it's faked. There's, right. there's a certain amount of... Uh, a certain population that will never be convinced. Yeah, but I think that that's very small. I, uh, what was a surprise, and I think they, I'm, I'm kind of hoping they learned a lesson, is a bunch of people said, I can get publicity by attacking this FBI thing and explaining why it, it, it's wrong. And then it turned out that uh, NSA had information which uh, uh, obviously could be much better. Uh, and I think the more responsible folks said, you know, you know maybe this wasn't such great publicity. Uh, uh, and I'm guessing that the next attribution, the one after that, there'll be less and less of that kind of uh, uh, approach. Well, one of the things I've tried to do is, is to say, okay, attribution, that's really nice. Uh, and saying, I know you did that, uh, has a certain uh, deterrent effect the first time you do it. The 15th time you do it and nothing happens, it has 
the opposite of deterrent effect. Uh, um, you know, the, I think the, the Iranians probably feel pretty good about hacking our banks, because, uh, 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 they didn't get a retaliation and they got us to the, uh, uh, the bargaining table. So, um, one of the questions is what kinds of consequences can you have to deter people? Uh, Admiral Rogers kind of has in mind maybe we could do something with our offensive capabilities. I just wrote a post uh, that said uh, uh, we ought to be able to sue the companies that are getting the secrets, not the companies that are the people, that's since it's uh, uh, often government officials uh, who are stealing the secrets, they are, you know, intend to retire with a government pension in many cases, uh, but the companies that they're helping have to sell their cool new technology around the world in order to get the benefit of it, and that means they have to come into uh, the home court of the guys they stole it from and try to get away with selling it. And if you've got really good attribution showing... You know, this was stolen by these guys on this date. They stole this kind of thing. It showed up in the pro- in the products that we're talking about six months later. You start to build a case that says this is stolen technology and they should pay a price not at home, not because they're hacked, but uh, they should pay massive damages to the company that was the victim. Yeah, I think w- what strikes me about that is scalability. Uh, and this struck me with the conversation about the Internet of Things case as well. Um, the biggest problem we have on the Internet is scale. You find something that works against a single target, and all other targets that are like it are, are generally at risk. And yet what do we have to fight that scale? Uh, the engineering solution would be you patch everything. And that while that can scale if you can get the patches out, it doesn't really work in reality. But this law approach, you're talking about class action lawsuits. Talk about scale. So this is this is interesting, I think. So maybe we could sue the PLA for <laughs> diminishing the, the value of all the uh, the Nasdaq uh, uh, by you know ten percent, and then we have a class action. Well, when you ta- you talked about theft, I already know of some companies that know that their intellectual property is being stolen. They're seeding that intellectual property such that when it gets reproduced and put into a product, they will say, "Look, this is in the stolen version of this product. It is not in the product that we sell for for use." And and they're using they're building this on their um, anti counterfeiting measures. Yeah. So some companies are thinking this way. I, I like that. Uh, you know, I, I, long ago I had some uh, uh, remote connection to a uh, uh, company. It was a trade case uh, uh, that made golf carts, and they faced competition from communist Polish golf carts. <laughs> and the company's name, the U.S. company's name, was EasyGo, uh, and they established that their a uh, golf cart had been uh, uh the design had been stolen because the bolts on the wheels of the Polish golf cart said easy go <laughs> so they, they copied it right down to the to yeah. the logo uh and so it's not hard to you know you put something in to, to especially when you're talking about code nobody wants to screw with code they don't even want to understand it they just want to run it uh and if it runs they're happy mm-hmm. uh and you could put something in that says uh you know uh if you query me i will tell you that i'm stolen mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i'm actually of the opinion that isn't popular in my field that involvement by more lawyers is going to help um, the technical solutions have only gone so far, and we need to get some of the other elements of civilized society engaged on this. And now that lawyers are seeing that there's some uh, – well, we're seeing on two sides. We're seeing it in, in your field, but also seeing on the prosecution side. I mean, think about the the, uh, the prosecutors out there who have a chance to stand next to the attorney general and talk about a big case that they, they just brought. People are seeing this as a way to get uh, advancement. So why not? I mean, everyone should do what they're what they're good at, and I think it will help. Yes, I think that would be, uh, uh, I'm convinced that, uh, while this may not be perfect, it's, a, it's one way of raising the cost of intrusions, mm-hmm. uh, or diminishing the, the value of them, because if you can, if, if one company suffers serious pain because of an accusation of hacking, especially one that's been properly proved, uh, everybody's going to look at that and say, well, that didn't work out so well for them. Mm-hmm. And when somebody comes and says, I've got this great stolen technology and it's cheap, they say, nah, you know, it, 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 it's cheap now, but it's going to be expensive later and I just as soon not, uh, not have it. And that wrecks the market for sure. stolen technology. I think we're seeing a certain amount of that with Huawei. Um, there was an uproar, well, an uproar in the security community at least uh, a few months ago when it was announced that Huawei was going to install the new wireless system in FedEx Field. Mm-hmm. And someone managed to get to the owners of FedEx Field and say why that was a bad idea, and they lost the deal. 
um, Huawei should make every effort to distance themselves from any sort of implication that they're benefiting from stolen technology. Otherwise, they'll just continue to lose deals. Right. Right. No, that would be that would that would that would that would kill it for them because uh, uh, the accusation is that they're facilitating other people's stealing secrets. Right. But if they were also benefiting from it, uh, there would be no mercy, at least in the U.S. and mm-hmm. most of the West. I think that's right. Uh, um, so here's my other problem with. Uh, what Admiral Rogers said, and I like your interpretation better than what I think the general interpretation was, which was that we should show people we can bring down their system. You know, we can send our professional basketball team out to, out to beat the crap out of their 10-year-olds, just like they're beating the crap out of ours. Uh, because that's not, uh, uh, that doesn't produce a, a uh, mutual assured destruction. Well, actually, it yields mutual de- assured destruction, but doesn't produce deterrence because every time you know some ten-year-old comes to you with a bloody nose, you say, "Well, I'm going to go bloody uh, two of theirs uh, to show them that this doesn't pay." Mm-hmm. And of course, what they see is, "Well, you you bloody two kids' noses. We're going to have to show you that that doesn't pay. Mm-hmm. We'll go bloody three noses." Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, since there's no real uh, taboo against using this technology and using these weapons, uh, uh, it just escalates worse and worse, it seems to me. That's true. That is one of the great security dilemmas is that in order to prove deterrence, you have to show what you can do, and the simple act of doing that can result in a counteraction and you get into an escalatory spiral. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, any Anything else that I, I, I really wanted to talk about, uh, a couple of reports you guys put out, uh, uh, the vulnerability of mobile stuff, the rise of Syrian uh, uh, intel- uh, cyber uh, intelligence collection, uh, uh, and a variety of, oh, I guess the the very sophisticated, uh, well, kind of, I guess not technically sophisticated, but but otherwise quite sophisticated uh, insider trading uh, uh, efforts uh, by uh, a gang. Uh, I assume these are all things that basically uh, uh, FireEye and Mandate has have seen in the course of doing investigations, uh, and you find this technology that you find the the data sitting on a C2 server. Or you see a particular attack uh, and uh, um, realize that this, they're looking for uh, insider information. Uh, what's the big development of the year from your point of view in terms of the kinds of things you're seeing? Well, as you mentioned, we are in a unique position. We're not out necessarily looking at drop sites where people are stealing. A lot of security companies, you know, they find activity by sinkholing or they right. found somebody's drop site, and instead we're inside the companies helping them recover. Um, I think you mentioned the, the Fin4 case. That's one of the cases where people have talked about that as a theory. You know, right. somebody could benefit on insider trading, and yet to find people who apparently are doing it and not necessarily know who they are, that's a big deal for me. Um, yeah, it was really good social engineering, really, really yeah. good social engineering. In- indicating that they had some knowledge of the industry and it wasn't just they weren't just an element in the pipeline these guys seemed to know what they were dealing with so i i have always thought that the reason we weren't going to see as much of this as as everybody expected is that uh, there are really good systems for watching trading mm-hmm. so that you there you can bring big data to bear on the trading patterns and find people who are trading in ways that suggest they knew something um and I don't know if this has happened in your Fin4 case, but taking what you see by way of activity, what you think was exfiltrated when, to NASDAQ uh, or NASD uh, and uh, the SEC, so they can go looking to see who was trading right around then, um, actually could produce a lot of deterrence. It could, yeah. That, that's a case where we do have very clearly established mechanisms to deal with this, regardless of how the information was acquired. Uh, and thankfully, that is something that will work regardless of uh, it being a cyber case. All right. Well, we before we uh, close up, we always try to give our uh, um, uh, guests an opportunity to plug stuff that they're going to be doing, speeches they'll give, uh, reports or uh, articles they're writing. Uh, have you got anything you want to tell the uh, the audience that uh, is coming out soon? 
Sure. So uh, information sharing, threat intelligence, all of this, these have been the buzzwords of recent times. Um, and yet uh, many people who just don't have a budget have no way to get access to some of this information. So there's a small company uh, I advise called Critical Stack, and you go to criticalstack.com as a website. Um, they have a free client that you can use to get access to, to about 60 different free feeds of threat intelligence. It'll cost you nothing. Uh, and it's a way to sort of play, you know, punch above your weight and get access to some of this data that you might have to, uh, play oh, that's really cool because I, 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 for the last two years, I've been giving this talk in which I say you have to base your security profile on who you think is coming after you and the way you, and, and what they're doing to do to, to, to come after you. And the only way to do that is with intelligence. Mm -hmm. So knowing that there are some, uh, uh, open source capabilities is very useful. Okay. Yep. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I, and, uh, uh, I'm not sure I have any speeches coming up uh, in the near future, so uh, uh, I will uh, thank Michael Battis, Jennifer Quinn Barabanov, Maury Shank, uh, and uh, Richard Baitlick. Uh, um, and as a reminder, uh, uh, the, Step the Stepto Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. You can send your uh, uh, questions to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com or leave a message at 202-862-5785. This has been episode 59 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, we have uh, a, a long pipeline of guests coming up uh, that I thought I would uh, mention. Jason Brown from the Secret Service will be talking about criminal investigations. Joe Nye, formerly of the National uh, uh, Intelligence Council, uh, will be coming on. Uh, Dmitry Alperovich from CrowdStrike. Alan Cohn from DHS, Mary DeRosa, who was uh, the uh, uh, legal advisor to the uh, National Security Council, uh, and finally Bruce Schneier, uh, um, who has a book, Data and Goliath, that uh, I am working my way through every third page, stopping to, to, to write a note that says, you can't possibly believe this, Bruce. Uh, <laughs> so uh, um, that should be entertaining. Uh, uh, and then finally, uh, for those of you who uh, uh, want to see why we do not um, uh, videotape the uh, Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, we will be doing a live event uh, at the Issa Nova uh, meeting on the 26th of May. Uh, uh, so we'll actually go walk about and produce the uh, program uh, at an event uh, with uh, Issa Nova, which is the Information Systems Security Association of Northern Virginia. So uh, look for that event on May 26th. Um, we hope you'll join us as we uh, next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.